Hello, and welcome to Freudian Flex. I'm your host, Sonia Freeman, and today's guest is Dr. Lucinda DiDomenico. Dr. DiDomenico is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in Boston. She has had a private practice in Newton Center for 25 years. She trained in internal medicine for her residency at Rhode Island Hospital and worked in an ER at Miriam Hospital in Providence for two years before going into psychiatry. She did her psychiatry residency at Tufts Medical Center. She currently supervises in the Department of Psychiatry for Tufts Medical Center and works in her private practice. Additionally, she was in an astrology group weekly for seven years. So welcome, Dr. DiDomenico. Sonia, thanks for inviting me, and please call me Lucinda. Will do. Okay. (laughs) So today we are talking about astrology and millennials and psychoanalysis. And I'm really excited about it because I know that this is something that people in my generation talk about a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think that different there are different ideas about what it is and what it means. And it's fascinating that there is an overlap between astrology and medicine, period. And it's also fascinating for me specifically that there's an overlap between astrology and psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And we're going to learn today about how astrology informs your practice. So I want to just open um, by asking you to tell us a little bit about your story briefly, just how did you get uh, into psychoanalysis specifically, and how did you get into astrology specifically, and how do you weave the two together um, in your professional life? Uh-huh. I have always felt that the bridge between inner world and outer world has always been the backdrop for me. Um, and what I mean by that is that we all have a sort of um, psychic spark that is within us that allows for an unfolding of how we understand ourselves in the world. And then there are all these interactions, our backgrounds with our families and important other people, and the interactions that happen outside in the world that catalyze, that collapse, that unfold. And if we look at things in a long timeline, oftentimes the things that happen to us that seem like really deep woundings end up becoming the sort of templates that lead to greater capacity, greater understanding, but often need some way of making a connection with Mm. before that. So my development in terms of psychiatry was that I started working with a psycho-spiritual teacher. Uh, He was a physician also, uh, William Brew Joy. And he worked with what I call desert work. (laughs) We went out to the desert for several weeks at a time and really did this profound group work that was depth psychological. He used more Jungian than Freudian. Yes, okay. Um, A lot of dream work and a lot of ritual. Can you give the listeners just an idea of what Jungian is? Okay, so Jung 
was one of Freud's disciples and initially started with developing an understanding of how unconscious experiences, understanding, influences our um, sort of surface-level awareness. What, what Jung did was, um, after a, a break, he began tapping into what are called, what's called the field of a collective unconscious, which is the unconscious of humanity as a whole and how the individual actually represents aspects of that collective unconscious. And so there are things called complexes that are sort of the innate patterns of humanity that are consistent from person to person, but then there are the particular ways that that individual might play things out where there might be some difficulties in accessing more positive ranges of... So, for example... Can you give an example? Yeah. um, Say there is a mother experience. There's so much about mothering, Mm. including nursing and uh, being cared for Mm -hmm. and loving and maybe even the idea of uh, holding an understanding of needs. And there would be individual ways in which someone would be able to have an experience around that. If a mother was more depressed when the child was growing up, that would have a particular influence in the way that pattern might unfold in the individual. It's not so different from the Freudian model, Mm -hmm. but it has this particular idea that the individual is a representation of something much larger. So there's a transpersonal experience to that way of working versus a more personal and intrapsychic way that the Freudians might work. And do you feel like you use Jungian more than Freudian theory, or you're just saying that your mentor initially used Jungian more? So I definitely did my training at the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute, (laughs) and they have more of what's the uh, intrapsychic, interpersonal mm-hmm. level. So even though there's Freudian, there are so many more models of, that have been elaborated that are really, it's a rich field. Mm. And that in and of itself for me is very satisfying. There are times though, um, especially if somebody is bringing in a dream, where my Jungian mind steps in and for some individuals it really is the place where a transformation might be accessed and might be facilitated. Can so, you for give example, a, yeah, <laughs> it's always in the example. It's always helpful. <laughs> I was working with somebody who um, was having a dream about an old lover, and there was something about this old lover who was from a tradition that clearly had um, a different uh, spiritual realm than this individual had. Um, She was Catholic and he was Jewish. And there was something about what he said in the dream that linked to a real spiritual peace from the Jewish tradition. And so in that way, it was much more about accessing the tradition and the 
psycho-spiritual connection, which this individual was not very psycho-spiritual. Mm. So to me, that meant, you know, we talked about it at levels that were much more personal and interpersonal. Um, but it seemed like there was that piece that needed to get accessed. And I was able to wonder about it with her. And in a surprising way, she made a connection to it that was very different than how she would have thought about it in any other time. Interesting. Yeah. Are dreams in Jungian theory considered to be the unconscious, or is it something different? Well, that's a very great question. <laughs> um, I think for the Jungians, dreams are the connection with the divine. And their idea of the divine is not the personal unconscious. It really is the collective unconscious. It's like the unconscious of the universe. Mm -hmm. And in those moments and in the ways that the Jungians will work with it, they will look at the way the individual is aligned in their own inner way with the unconscious of the divine with the unconscious of the universal mm -hmm. piece. So it's very different than the way the Freudians will work with the dream. And can you describe a little bit about how the Freudians might work with the dream and how that's different? Yeah. So say, for example, um, uh, I'm just trying to see if I can remember a dream. Mm -hmm. I think it's much more at the personal levels. If we think about, and neuropsychoanalysis is really teaching us about this at this point, we're looking at the different kinds of memories within the unconscious. We're looking at different kinds of unconsciouses. So there are those unconscious where um, it's called the dynamic unconscious, where the individual will have an experience, and because it's overwhelming, they will repress it. Mm -hmm. But it's still active in a verbal and knowable manner. Mm. And it will influence, um, and dreams are often are about what are those dynamic patterns. It might be about um, an interaction with a boss that might bring up relationships with one's parents or other authority figures, um, or it may be about a sense of self that is either vulnerable or aggressive towards particular interactions. So there might be an emotional content that brings us into an awareness of the way the individual holds a certain part of themselves. Mm. The idea that, the un that a dream is about making a connection with what is not conscious for the individual is clearly the piece that is resonant throughout any model. Okay. There are some forms of uh, unconscious, though, that are not dynamic. If we think about a baby, if we think about even us right now, we're sitting together, we're having this conversation, but I'm watching you rubbing your arms. I know <laughs> Dan is behind the screen doing his magic. Hey, Dan. You know, and so we have all of this. I know that there's a woman upstairs. There's all of this awareness, but it's not getting verbally put. Mm. It's more experiential. Sometimes dreams can bring us to that kind of experience. Yeah. Um, Although a it, dream about me itching my arm is going to be a really boring <laughs> one for you. so Well, it's, it's more about what is your 
arm itching. How do how am I feeling it? Am mm. I I went to this level and it's the opposite arm of you, but it's on the same side as we're oh, sitting opposite each other. For the listeners, we our body language <laughs> is completely symmetrical but reflected. Like it's mirrored right now. That's right. Really so interesting. Something about myself picked that up about yourself. Mm. And you know, that is just a little micro moment. But in various kinds of interactions, we're often picking that kind of information up. And sometimes that can come up in a dream. And the experience then needs to be put into language in order to be known. Fascinating. Yeah. So cool. Okay, I'm bringing us back to the desert because I I derailed us a little bit. But you're in the desert with your mentor who was a physician. What kind of physician was he? He had studied um, heart and lung. Okay. And he was an MD or a... He was an MD. Okay. And then because of a medical illness, he... And he started, um, ironically, during his medical training, he started working with his psycho-spiritual teacher. And in that process, um, shortly after, he got severely medically ill and went out into his process and had a transformation related to the illness holding a dynamic experience that needed to, you know, illness is often um, a vehicle for either living too small a life or too big a life. It calls us into awakening into what we have to do. Wow. That's his model. So, wow. <laughs> so, so um, did he experience his physical illness as being a representation of the dynamics that he was holding? He saw it eventually um, as his living too small a life being in traditional medicine. And so he left medicine and began doing this psycho-spiritual group work. Mm-hmm in which people got together and um, in a group there is an amplification of the energy. If you think Mm. one-on-one is one thing, you bring a group in and suddenly there is more possibility of seeing more levels of transference. You know, what am I projecting onto somebody else that is about my story? Mm -hmm. Um, There is more subgrouping, so you get to see variations in the theme of a pattern. Um, And there is something about having more people that actually facilitates seeing more of the aspects of the dynamic of any particular Mm. discussion that's being had. So it's really, um, it was a very powerful way of learning. Yeah. And, you know, after two weeks of doing that, I felt like I had been propelled Mm. for like, you know, two years forward, given, given what that was. And... You know, there were audio tapes, so you get to hear it over and over again yeah. and just review things. And Wow. So you listen to some of the things that you were talking about during that experience still now. I do. Wow. Every couple of years, I might pull out the, some of them, are we converted them to CDs, but um, they were on tapes. <laughs> can you talk, I don't know if this is too personal of a question, but can mm. you talk about some of the actual things that you that are on those tapes or that you learned during that experience? 
You know, I think one of the things that kept drawing me back was that it felt to me that whatever my medical training was, I operated under only a particular level, and the work with Brew really opened things up. So, um, you know, even now I can, I can say that I would never have picked up on this except that whenever I did that kind of work, if I went out into nature, something played out of the dynamics in nature that really felt shamanic. Mm. So I had um, this, and this may not take us to where you want, but you'll redirect me. There was this one session just a few weeks ago where I was talking to a young woman who I care very much about. She's very lovely, but mm. she's struggling to simply be able to speak what's on her mind. Mm -hmm. And at one point, she was angry with me, and she withdrew even more. And all of a sudden, I started hearing this cricket. Now, I'm in a, um, a commercial building. I've been there for over 10 years. I have never heard a cricket in that building. Hmm. I kept hearing this cricket, and this cricket got louder and louder, and I felt suddenly it was in the office space. Hmm. And I thought, wow, like, what is this? And I wondered, what does this have to do with this person and what we're going through right now? And the minute I had that thought, the cricket voice suddenly was more outside the building. Mm. And she started sniffling. And then the cricket started diminishing. And, it's, and then she started able to talk with me about something that was bothering her. And the cricket went away. So what I made of that experience, mm. which is the line that Brew would always say, so what do you make of that experience? Mm -hmm. What I made of that experience is that in that model, the individual and the universe are one. And this is a field that is playing something out to be known, to be experienced. But because of it being a psychodynamic therapy, I think it's also to be known. Mm. And there was something about her that felt small but noisy, at that moment. Yeah. And given that this woman is so quiet, the noisiness was such a paradox. And I needed to be aware that there was a lot more going on inside her, even if she couldn't make that known to me. It was noisy inside her. Mm. It was noisy in the office space when this cricket commanded my attention. Huh. Now, what we did with that, I think will unfold. But that moment in my mind, brought me to an awareness that what I was seeing wasn't enough. Mm. I had to use a different kind. I had to use my ear eyes. I mm. had to use a different way of being to become aware of her. Mm. And that's, that's how I used that moment. That's fascinating. I, I recently read an article about the noises in the hospital and how the music the notes coming from the machines is actually unfortunately uh it it combines to make one of the worst sounds to mm. the human ear mm. and this article was about an effort to actually change the sounds that come out of the machines in the hospital 
I thought this was so interesting. Absolutely. I also feel this way. I think personally in my life, I think I am very sensitive to loud noises and Mm -hmm. things that don't sound right to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that the auditory experience of the world is something that goes largely unnoticed in a lot of settings and I think largely forgotten a lot of the time. So I have a personal experience. I was, this was many, many years ago, I was um, trying to sort out something. So I went into the woods and I'm a fear-based creepy crawler kind of thing. You know, I don't like spiders and bugs and things like that, but I felt compelled to go to this woods. Mm -hmm. And I brought uh, my tools and I was reading up on animals and animal energy. There's a a wonderful book. um, I think it's Jan Wainis who did uh, the medicine cards, which had this animal energy base to it. And going out into the des- into that area of the woods, I did my ritual and I completed it, but I felt like this was just a little too surface, a little too pretty, a little too clean. Mm-hmm. I had that thought. So I'm walking out, and as I'm walking the path going back to my car, I the book flies open <laughs> to snake. Oh. I thought, okay. I was working with frog energy. And now I have snake energy. And I think, all right, so what does this have to do with me? And I walk a little bit further. And again, the book flies open and it's again on snake. And there wasn't a crease in the book. So I thought, all right, one time interesting, two time more interesting, three confirmatory. So I'm walking along. The book opens and a fly lands. And I now like shut the book. But when I open it... There's a dead fly, and it's still on snake. So what does it mean? All right. So (laughs) I said, what does it mean? What does it mean? (laughs) So all of a sudden, I hear a sound. Now, in the woods, there are a million and five sounds. Mm -hmm. So I hear this sound, and it's like my ear is being pulled, and I cross the path, and I go down to this place where I'm hearing the sound emanating from, And there's a snake that has a frog in its mouth. Wow. And I think, that's what this is about. I am working at too small a level. I'm working at only seeing one part of the dynamics. And snake is usually the animal whose energy is about transformation, shedding, dying, rebirth. And so there's something about the need to consume something in order to continue the process of that. Mm. So that reconfigured how I was thinking about my dilemma at the time. And that was just a very powerful moment where I felt I was in the eye of God, Mm -hmm. the eye of the universe, and the universe was guiding me. Mm. Now, we have... The potential for that. This is not just happening to me. Mm -hmm. We all have the potential for that. What is our connection to our inner world that Mm -hmm. allows for that kind of connection to our outer world? Mm. And I think psychoanalysis is one vehicle to bring us to one of those layers. I think we're so complex. I think there are so many layers 
Psychoanalysis is about accessing one of those deep layers. Mm. Shamanic work is about accessing another deep layer. Group work is about accessing another deep layer. Can you talk about the specific deep layer that psychoanalysis is addressing and how what you're talking about, how the universe and your knowledge of astrology plays into your care? I know that's a huge question. Mm -hmm. You're obviously a storyteller, and I am loving it. (laughs) If you want to share a story about that in order to convey it, that would be amazing. Um, Or just any sort of description. I'm trying, I think in my mind, medicine and astrology and the universe and religion are all pretty separate. And it's really amazing to see an accomplished physician and psychoanalyst like yourself, who is so articulate about the overlap between these concepts, because I think a lot of people turn their nose up at that. Mm -hmm. I'm interested, too, in where you've met roadblocks. I'm sure you have with people who don't believe in what you're talking about. Um, But let's start maybe with how you envision that overlap between astrology and psychoanalysis or psychodynamic therapy and how it helps you in your practice. Okay, so I I am going to take a step back first by saying um, (laughs) I do think it's been difficult, and I think I've kept things relatively separate. So it's interesting that you and I started out thinking one way about this podcast, (laughs) and we have ventured into this topic, which... I am grateful for because I don't think I would be speaking so openly about this. To the listeners, (laughs) I had a different plan for this podcast coming out of the gates. This is the first time I've ever met Dr. DiDomenico, and uh, I told her what my plan was, and then I was just reading her her intro, and she uh, mentioned that she had done astrology and lit up, and I said, bag the plan. (laughs) We're doing astrology. Like, let's talk about something that makes you excited. So Mm. I'm really glad we're talking about it, too. Mm. Okay. (laughs) Um, So if I think about um, what psychoanalysis is, when I started my training, I, I had done psychodynamically oriented psychotherapy which is in the same vein as psychoanalysis for my career. That I grew up in the Department of Psychiatry at Tufts. That was their principal format. And so I was really imbued with that. My supervisors were all analysts. And so it was a wonderful way of having that just be... And, and having had this brew experience and worked in the desert work all that previous time, this was really a great match for me. Um, when I went into the Institute, I began thinking, um, because I am also an internist, I began thinking about the psyche soma and developed this sort of, um, Tokian world of where psyche soma was in each model, where certain, uh, phrases from each model came in. And so I have kind of like, you know, upper world, middle world, underworld Mm. uh, mapping that goes along with that. Um, 
And when I think about um, astrology, there's something very similar. If you look at a chart, it's at least the Western model is often a circle. The uh, more Indian model is a square. Um, and in it is, um, there's a subjective layer, there's an objective layer, there's a self layer, there's another layer, other layer. And you're seeing 12 houses with planets and asteroids that are in that. And you're looking at dynamic patterns that emerge between these planets interacting and where they are on the planet, uh, on the chart. You're also looking at how somebody's natal experience transforms over time and what dynamic patterns may be activated. Mm -hmm. um, I get a yearly solar uh, return chart read um, by my teacher, who's Eric Linter, and um, he's just fantastic. So mm. I do that. I have a birthday coming up. I'm going to be having one of those readings, wow. and it's just very exciting. So I often, um, for certain individuals, will ask them if I can have their birth information. I will make a copy of the chart that I have with me. I give them a copy of it. I put a copy in the records. And sometimes I will use that understanding. If I'm stuck with something, um, I will sometimes use it to look at what I might be missing what might be activated, what are the themes they're talking about that might help me anchor it. And clearly, I studied astrology before I did psychoanalysis, so it wasn't so difficult for me to go in and hear, you know, whatever model we were looking at at the time to think about what sort of dynamic patterns might be more represented in a model. Um, and so, mm. to me, there is quite a link between the two. Can you give an example of this, like a story where astrology helped inform a decision you made or an interpretation you made in analysis? So um, I, I'll use it more for some, a case that I had um, years ago. Um, there was a particular way that this individual, uh, a woman, and I kept getting stuck in a power struggle. And I, I couldn't, for the life of me, understand completely what the transference was about. The idea that the past is getting replayed in the moment, or the moment is triggering a past pattern that hasn't been completely worked through. Mm -hmm. So that it's alive. The past mm -hmm. is alive in the moment. And so I had her chart, and I looked at it, and it was very clear that my Saturn, my um, master, my authority, my more rule-based authority, was on her, um, was squaring her Venus, which is her sense of her femininity, the way that she um, loves and that that square represented a tension that she needed to overcome something within herself, because the square is about an inner dynamic, but it was playing out in the moment through me, mm -hmm. in which my authority was being used rigidly, 
by this aspect of her feminine. And, you know, I had to then think, how was I being rigid? Uh, in what ways was I um, not facilitating her own connection to her own authority? And how could I shift that? And so I began speaking that kind of language. And while the treatment didn't last much longer, I felt like that moment when I understood that, the next time we got together and I used some of that, it was a much easier flow. And mm. I was able to wonder with her how she experienced me as a rigid authority huh. figure to be able to then hear her own thoughts about that mm. and really bring something that would not have been in her awareness, but in a dynamic way was playing out between us. And that brought it more to her awareness. How did you vocalize something like that in a helpful, useful way? Uh, what I said to her was what I had been observing. I, I noticed that there was a way we were getting kind of Butting heads. But that after that, she felt crushed in some way. And she acknowledged that. So I was really checking out whether that was how she was seeing it. And I wondered with her what I was doing. Um, you know, did I feel rigid to her? Did I feel too authoritarian? These are the sorts of negative aspects of Saturn. Every planet has positive aspects and negative aspects, which is true in anything. Huh. We can use things expressively or defensively. Mm. And so I was able to use that kind of language, and so we made more of a connection with what was going on between the two of us. With this, with learning this kind of information for myself, because I get nervous that the information from the universe will be negative and that I will be, it'll be like, like a 23andMe test where you realize that you have a genetic predisposition to a cardiac disease, so then you kind of treat it appropriately. I worry that an astrological reading would maybe do the same thing. Like, it would maybe uh, give some, it would maybe suggest that I was going to run into a roadblock here or there, and then I would be nervous about that. How does that, is that completely incorrect or how you say you're excited about your reading i when i think about how i would experience the anticipation of getting a reading of my astrological chart on my birthday i think it would make me very nervous mm. okay so the question would be what about knowing you know th they're not um they're not psychic in terms of being able to tell you exactly what's going to happen. You're looking at um, the possibilities and the likelihood that some kind of um, process will happen. Um, and over time, you the goal is for you to become aware of it and aware of how you're being impacted. It's your inner experience meeting an outer moment. And in that way, the outer influences the inner, the inner influences the outer, mm -hmm. and how do you grow? 
Because in the end, that is what we hope to do, even with our psychoanalytic models. Mm -hmm. We hope to help an individual meet the roadblocks, meet the places where maybe particular dynamics left a deficit um, rather than a defect, Mm. and how we can help the individual organically um, be able to sit in the difficulty long enough so that their own inner being begins to grow, develop more capacity, move from a stuck place or an unable-to-speak-about-it place to a place that is more freed up. You can't get rid of anything that is your inherent temperament, template, woundings, prior history, but you can tell the story in a new way. Hmm. How long is a reading of an astrological chart? Um... So I have often, it's often been about an hour and a half. Um, Clearly, in an hour and a half, you're not going to get everything, but certain nodal experiences that are coming up for the year are reviewed. Um, And I oftentimes also look at the drawing, the pattern that emerges from the planets lined up. Mm -hmm. And that often gives me um, an idea of what, you know, visually might be something about that year. Hmm. And it's certainly not the only thing I look at. Um, I'm still in a lot of supervision. Uh, I touch base with my analyst once in a while. Um, I did two analyses. Hmm. Um, One when I was a, a resident and one as I was going through the program. And there was clearly ways that I felt my own dynamics emerging. I often went to my astrological chart to see, oh, this is what's coming up in my treatment right now. Mm. How, how is this, was this reflected in the chart? Did I, could I have had an inkling about it? Um, and oftentimes mm. there was. Interesting. Yeah. Have you experienced a lot of pushback on this idea? I haven't told a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) It's about to be out in the world on an auditory platform. (laughs) Well, it's funny because I have, um, I'm getting ready for my birthday, which is July 2nd, and there is going to be um, a total solar eclipse just about hours before my birth time. Mm. And then in two weeks, there will be a lunar eclipse. And so what this is, is that there's an intensification. The moon and the sun are together at the same point. Mm -hmm. And there's an intensification because the lunar nodes are there. And my north node, which has to do with how one is growing into the world versus what one has to leave behind from the uh, southern uh, lunar node. And so I do think that this podcast must be somehow oh, instigated so nice. by that possibility that, you know, I have to actually find a way of making my multiple layered voice 
heard in a new way. <laughs> wow. I'm so honored to be part of the process. Thank you, universe. Right. <laughs> That's so wonderful. Are you a, a religious person? You talk about God a little bit in your description. How does that fit in? Um, so I grew up Catholic, and they say once the church has you for five years, it has you for life. Mm. I do find the stories about Christ really opening, mm. um, but more from a Jungian perspective, mm. which is about um, the submission of the human on the cross in order to come into one's divinity. And divinity in this way has to do with who you are as your unique representation of the divine impulse in human form. Mm. And that the cross pulls you in four directions, and that is the unbearable tension of living mm. and carrying the burden, and can we carry it more consciously? So I think along that lines, mm. I have that spiritual impulse. But I'm also very much nature-oriented. Mm. My partner and I are putting our landscaping in place, and the way that we're doing it is so thoughtful and methodical and slow as molasses. But, mm. you know, we're really listening to the land and listening to our dreams, and he and I are, you know, just putting it together in a very lovely way. Mm. At the very beginning of this, you mentioned a psychic spark. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Mm. Um, it has to do, I think, with a kind of curiosity that is alive. If I, if I could think of the spark, it's, is someone interested in being themselves? Is someone interested in living their lives more fully? What would that mean? What gets in the way of that? What mm. facilitates that? And can I, as a therapist, as an analyst, support, create the environment that's safe enough that allows each individual coming into my office to find their way to that? And that has a lot is of everything. Yeah, I mean, is. that's all of life. I, I wanted to ask you before, do you think that people are inherently interested in their own behavior or not interested in their own behavior? I think by the time they come to me, they're unconsciously interested. Whether they are able to bring that into their own um, awareness whether it gets left projected onto me as being the one that has to bring them there. You know, that's the work. Mm. What's getting in their way of being able to talk? So, you know, even this young woman who I mentioned earlier about the cricket, she had had several treatments before and something didn't click. Mm. There was something about my ability to be quiet there was something about my ability to wait, which troubled her greatly, but also gave her enough room for her to find her own way into the silence, into the space, mm. and then I could meet her there. Mm -hmm. And that is very different than 
guiding somebody there. It's waiting for that impulse to become known and in the room mm. to be able to track it and follow it. And being patient, you know, that each person has their way, mm. their own organic timing, their own rhythms, and to be really um, patient. Yeah. Even when there may not be, maybe even when, if inside, and I do know that sometimes inside there may be a push for me to say something and sometimes I will say something mm -hmm. but it's meant to kind of let the person know that I'm still there I'm waiting I'm wondering about this and that wondering is okay mm -hmm. even if there's some rigidity to it even if there's some impatience to it that that is also okay this is ultimately about a relationship between two people mm -hmm. and what that idea is is different than any other relationship in the world maybe it's true for pastors and rabbis and priests and priestesses and all of that but that you aren't going to have this kind of relationship with anybody else there's something very special Mm -hmm. about therapy, the therapeutic process, analysis, that is about becoming, not just knowing. Mm. I think it's a recurring theme in these interviews, the importance of having patience with emotion. And it is inherently at odds with the what defines the millennial generation in a lot of ways the speed that's being sought, the impatience for the cure. Have you run up against this at all clinically? So I, when you say that, it makes me wonder how, um, how we're so influenced by tech, with technology and the immense power technology offers us. There's a seduction there. It's almost drug-like. I remember this one person, I was doing more medication and I was writing out prescriptions and he took out his phone and started looking things up almost as if in the five minutes he could not remain silent. Mm -hmm. And so I do wonder about what technology is doing to our nervous systems um, and the brain waves, the waves that come into the brain and activate it if you're on the computer late at night, you're going to have trouble sleeping because unless you put the proper screens on, there's certain waves that are activating. Mm -hmm. I also saw, this was a very poignant uh, moment that even came up at other times. I was on the train watching this mother with her probably 10-month-old baby. And she was on her phone um, and he was looking at her. And he was really, they were almost looking like there was a look of longing. Mm. And so she stopped her phone. She looked at him. And he then had to turn away. Huh. And so she went back to her phone and he went back to looking at her. And it made me wonder if there was some way in which her gaze was missing so that he, had, he could let himself reach out to her but when she turned her gaze to him, it was too overwhelming. Huh. And, you know, I think about what would that little boy, what's he going to be like at age two? What will he be like at age five? Um, 
so I, I, do, I do wonder about mm. this sort of thing. Um, I'm about ready to start a mother and child, an infant observation course, oh, where cool. I will be going and watching a newborn with their mom Whoa. or maybe even their dad as mm. primary caretaker to see what that relationship is like. Mm. And I do wonder how different that will be without technology yes. <laughs> than with technology yes. and how that kind of um, body-to-body contact, the interactions that happen even through the gaze or through the sound of voice, mm. you know, how that will play out and what will I get to see as a result of that as a kind of primary sort of relationship mm. compared to then this example of this mother and son that seemed already strained in a way, even though the mother was very loving to him when she turned her gaze to him. What are some of the things you might say, if you had that son and that mother as patients, what are some of the things that you might say to help repair that relationship? Uh, Well, I would wonder, first of all, I, I don't know if that would have come up in our work there's something about not noticing my mm. guess is this mom really didn't notice something which was her son was more comfortable wanting her yes as she was busy doing something else and would she have noticed what what did she think when he moved away what would their relationship be like in the room with me? And could we bring her attention to that? Um, I've worked with one mother and child, um, and it was interesting. I think the mom was a very new mom, and um, she was uncomfortable with certain aspects, even holding the baby. And so we began talking about holding her baby and... What was that like? And what happened when the baby got fussy? And helping the mom actually make a connection even when she felt overwhelmed. Mm. Helping her be calmed so that she could become more aware that she could manage that Mm. and be aware of this baby and begin to be curious and not just overwhelmed. Mm. You have a a full... The to the highest level, a curiosity about your own behavior and an openness about the way that you think about yourself in the world. How did you find that in your life? For me, um, I went to a Catholic elementary school. Every day before I went to school, I dropped in the church and said a little prayer, read some of the books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And there was this older woman there who I think in a way was grandmotherly toward me. Uh-huh. And so she and I would talk. And so for me, it was a very mm-hmm. loving, rich, it had mind because I was reading, it had prayer, and it had this connection to this very lovely, elderly, maternal figure mm-hmm. for me. And then I would go off to school. And so I always had... Um, just a sort of curiosity, mm. and it never got dampened. Do you still pray now? I do, um, but I pray in a different way. Um, I pray to 
the divine impulse. Um, it's almost like a mantra. And um, that that actually, I meditate, I meditate in a heart-centered way, which often has the energy of Christ and the Buddha. Um, and I do... Um, you do? <laughs> and so when I'm cleaning them, I will also say a prayer. I will say something about releasing the energy to the divine. And so I will have that kind of, um, that kind of attitude mm. toward these things. Are you okay with having that on the pod? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so what she whispered is that she works with crystals, which is also something that is so hot right now in L.A. with celebrities, with the millennial generation in general. I don't know anything about this. I just hear it in passing. Uh-huh. How does that contribute to your life and the care that you give your patients? Um... I just think they are so beautiful. Like, I I mean, it's just, it's such a visual thing that draws me in. And then I am attentive to the energy coming from them. Um, I do know that certain kinds of crystals will offer certain access to certain kinds of energies or that are useful for particular kinds of um, dilemmas, conflicts, challenges. Um, and what do you do? You like hold them? Well, I have some very huge crystals in my office. How big are they? Uh, I have one that's about that big. That looks like two one, or three feet tall. Yep. Um, wow. And then I have uh, one that's this sort of triangular that has multiple, um, uh, multiple crystals uh, just emanating like flowers. Mm. Um, so I don't tend to use them so much in my work, but I like having them around me. They're beautiful to look at, and um, they're decorative, but they're more than decorative. Do you believe that the crystals contain specific energies? Mm-hmm. They can, do. Can they're you, like yeah. beings. They're like beings. Yeah. I mean, we're if you look at ourselves and you look at... There's a lot of crystalline formations within our cells mm. as well, so... You know, we are, I heard one person say that we are the best crystals on the planet. Mm. We both collect energies, we're energies of different sorts, and we emanate energy. Mm. And so, you know, that that is not surprising to me. Mm. It's something that probably is in the background, but I don't normally use that um, in my work. Interesting. What's an example, is is it... Like, this crystal has this energy because it's this type of crystal. Like, I I don't even know a name of a crystal. Quartz? Is that a crystal? So does quartz have a specific energy no matter which which, uh, piece it actually is? Or does each individual piece of quartz have its own kind of energy? Absolutely. Each individual piece has its own energy, but then it's... If you have a clear quartz versus a smoky quartz, there are different properties to those two crystals. Rose quartz is about a heart-centered energy. And um, there is something very soothing about looking at a pink crystal 
the energy definitely emanates in that way. Where did you learn about this? My teacher, Brew Joy. Okay, okay. <laughs> he really opened up yeah. a whole nother sphere of the universe. Yeah. Um, and I mean, in that way, I, I am grateful to have gone back to psychoanalysis because there was something about being out there. And for me, there was something about coming home inside myself and making that connection the center anchoring mm. rather than it being in my mind as a way of knowing things. Mm. There's something about coming back in and embodying who I am and what I know and um, what comes up in the moment with each individual that I sit with or with the same person over multiple times a week or over multiple years. And did you start the desert training after you did your medical training or before? I started it, um, well, I started studying astrology on my own when, <laughs> this was another one of those stories, I, um, my first year of medical school, I thought, fuck, there's <laughs> got to be something more than just reading and storing all this mm -hmm. knowledge in my brain and I was like I loved it <laughs> but it there? was yeah <laughs> so I said so the next person I meet I am going to start a conversation with them I'm just going to see where this goes mm. and I lived in Alston at the time and I walked down the hill because I was taking the train into school and I met this very unique guy who ended up um, we ended up having a friendship for the rest of my uh, medical school career where we, I started studying astrology as a result of him. We would get together once every couple of weeks for dinner and just talk about music and astrology. And that was like mm. a breath of fresh air next mm. to the rigors of just learning and learning. And even though I was learning another new language, mm -hmm. it was fun. It was, mm -hmm. I, I could be wrong and there couldn't, there weren't dire consequences yes. to it, you yeah. know? Um, so it was, I think, sparking that my medical school career and my astrologic interest started at that point in time. Mm. So I started in uh, medical school, but I didn't start working with this teacher until I was um, running an inpatient ward and uh, was needing some, again, needing something else. So you were, you had graduated from medical school and done your residency. I had. And then I started the seven-year wow. weekly training before I went into um, analytic training. Wow. So... Why did you go back into analytic training after you did the astro astrological training? Oh, because I met up with somebody, a patient, who I felt I was doing my best work with, uh -huh. and I wasn't seeing any change. Mm. And I could not figure that out. Um, so it was very clear once I moved back into the analytic training was very clear what was going on. Um, and I got to really work with this person eventually in a much deeper way where um, 
you know, she did end up walking out of the treatment in a very painful ending, but it wasn't because we hadn't gotten somewhere. Mm. I think we had gotten to the place that was going to be the most difficult and painful piece that she would have to face, and she couldn't face it, at least in that moment. Mm. And, and that was 10 years of working together, so it was okay. not something simple. It was really very dramatic and very meaningful. Mm. I mean, analysis really brings us to meaningful places at a personal level. How that's reflected with something else that the astrology would deal with, but at a very personal and interpersonal level, I don't think there's anything like analysis. Mm. That is what helps someone get to the deeper layers. Can you be a little more specific about that? Like, what do you think it is about analysis that does that? So, analysis is about bringing oneself to a trusting place with another. And even if somebody is not very trusting, if one is able to keep showing up with the understanding that everything that comes up, everything that has to come up, can potentially come up in that safe container. And that while the analyst may not be able to tell you what's going on because it's not a psychic experience it is lived through in the relationship the analyst will pick up aspects of the dynamics being played out and that kind of information with somebody who has more of a language can bring in other layers of understanding that over time the individual can make use of, and then they can also grow and transform in that kind of setting. Hmm. Do you think that you lean on astrology to do a similar thing, or do you think in your mind the universe is an entirely different component than that relationship that you're describing? So if I think that the universe is everywhere, and, you know, I think of it as sort of everywhere, it's the life impulse, but the life impulse also includes the death impulse. Mm -hmm. um, then we are, in that moment, a certain expression coming forward. And I don't think of that consciously, but even as I'm thinking about it now, it's much more in my background that the encounter with one individual or in one moment is what's coming up at that moment. And so that is what's getting attention. Mm. That I think about working with a patient who's coming to me in therapy or analysis at a much more interpersonal, intrapsychic level or levels if something comes up, I might say something to them about it. You know, if I were a Jungian, I would say this to you. Mm -hmm. um, but that, and in the end, I, that all gets um, sort of folded into more of the intrapsychic, interpersonal experience. 
So interesting. How did you, you must have felt so suffocated when you were doing an internal medicine residency, or did you not? No, no. I mean, it was an incredibly powerful experience. Mm. I don't regret doing it for a moment, but there were moments where it had me on my knees in tears. Really? It was so hard. On the other hand, it gave me this incredible access to the body. Mm. And that is, for me, really profound. Yeah. You know, profound in the way that even when I sit with patients, so I don't oftentimes think of the astrological piece, but I'm very much aware of the embodied piece. Mm. How, how do I feel in my body when I'm sitting with this other person? What's that saying about the way they are in their body or mm. what they have to do to another person's body? And how can I bring that into my comments to them that might begin to start opening things up? So I'll watch breath. Oh, you're holding your breath there. Well, that's a big sigh that you're taking. Or I might notice that they're watching and staring at me and I'm saying, what's behind the stare? Mm. Let's see if we can try to understand why you're staring at me. Um, or I might tune in to something in my body that might be a kind of anxiety or even something, a patient was doing something with their body as a way of managing their anxiety with me. And she didn't want to tell me what it was. And so I scanned my body and I picked up what she was doing. Now, I had also done this body work with somebody. So hmm. I was really in my body in a very nuanced way. But I could then say something about it and wonder why she couldn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. You know, so that everything in a treatment that comes up is up for review, for being known as a part of oneself that's trying to be known mm -hmm. or not be known. Mm -hmm. You know, and why would it have to not be known? Yeah. Did you have mentors when you were in medicine, who were medicine doctors, but who were more psychologically minded like you were? Or do you feel like this is just something that's lived inside you for a really, really long time? I, I think meeting Brew Joy. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to cry now. He I'm... just meant so much to me. And mm -hmm. He has since passed, but there's oh. a way that I feel his presence, um, presence yes. in me and how he's helped me grow into the person that I yeah. have become. And so I just feel really indebted to him. And without having met him, I think it would have been a much more sterile life. Yes. Well, now we're both crying. <laughs> <laughs> and it is so profoundly moving, truly. And the way that you talk about it, I think, is not only incredibly interesting and informative, it also for a young, budding psychiatrist, is very hopeful. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. And I think that it is something that's universal, this, regardless of what you believe in, like I myself am Jewish, I'm not Catholic, um, and I think uh, that a lot of people maybe don't believe in astrology and crystals and all of this type of thing. But I do think that 
everyone has this drive to figure out why they do what they do and where their internal self is Mm -hmm. in the context of the universe. And it is so hard to figure that out. I think a lot of people go through their entire lives without figuring it out. And then there are some people, a lot of people, who are brave enough to really try. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's very lovely said. Thank you. Yeah. I think that's a good place to end for us. Okay. (laughs) This has been so wonderful. You are such a fascinating person, and I'm so glad that you came here today. Well, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for the opportunity of bringing myself more integratedly into this experience. You are very welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Freudian Flex, produced by Sonia Freeman and Daniel Radin. Original music by Nicholas Guarnada. You can follow us on Instagram at Freudian Flex. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions for us or if you are a psychoanalyst interested in being featured on the podcast, please email us at freudianflex at gmail.com. Till next time.